You can take your Bibles and turn to Philippians. Well, we're going to start out at Philippians chapter 4. We are going to be, like last week, we are going to be uh, using it quite a bit. So if you will uh, have them on the ready, but we can begin in, uh, in Philippians chapter number 4. So we've been doing a series, a study, on what the Bible says about. What the Bible says about. And so we've covered what the Bible says about itself what the Bible says about uh, self-esteem, self-love, self-image. That was uh, what we covered last week. And this week, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about contentment. What the Bible says about contentment. This is a, an important issue. I think it's an issue that uh, really is the underlying problem for many. We live in a society that is constantly at work to try to make you discontent. And the, besides the fact that you, we already have fallen hearts, sinful fallen hearts, that are given to idolatry, as Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories, that we are quick to make idols out of anything and everything that comes to our fancy. When you couple that with the world, with a society that is constantly at work to try to make you not content with what you already have, this can be the lead to many, many sins and many, many problems, many, many issues that people are facing and struggling with. Uh, You just turn on your television. You go to the grocery store. Ads are all trying to sell you on you need what we have. You need this uh, snack break. You need this meal from our place. You need this vacation. You need this temporary uh, break and leisure. You need this pleasure that we are offering. You need this distraction. Everything is pointing at what you need, and that hits to the center of the fact or the, the idea that what you have already is not sufficient. It's not sufficient. And so we're going to look at this this morning. Uh, let's begin reading, and we're going to, this is going to be sort of our thesis chapter, Philippians chapter number 4. Like I said, we're going to be all over, but we're going to read uh, basically verse 1 to verse 19 this morning. Verse 1 to verse 19. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Odia. And I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be, known, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, 
if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at your last, now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And here's our final verse that we'll read in our opening scripture reading. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This is not something that I want to begin with by coming at you and, and just sort of stepping on your toes this morning. Um, you guys get maybe 45 minutes of this, but this has been working on me all week. Uh, this is something that I've been struggling with, pinpointing in my own heart where my discontent is. Where do I struggle with being content in my own life? One thing that I feel like that I really struggle with being discontent in is how many books I have. <laughs> I want more books. I'm always like, hey, can I buy another book, honey? She's like, uh, let's read another one before you get another one. That's one area I wish I could just have all the... What, and if I wanted to get a little bit more serious about it, a little bit more um, direct about it, really, my discontent comes in the area of knowledge. I want it. I want knowledge. I want wisdom more than what God has granted to me at the present moment. And if it's not, if I'm not careful, at times, that becomes my idol. I'm looking at that more than I am looking at the graces of Christ and being content with where he has me at this moment. I search my heart and I ask, am I content with status, title, uh, recognition. I see guys and I, I, I see men and pastors around the country that are being asked for their opinion on things. And I wonder, why, we, why do I care what he thinks? But I ask myself, am I asking that because I'm upset that they're not asking me? These are things I struggle with as far as my areas of contentment that I've been going to God this week. So just so you know, 
it's working on me as well. I was talking with Adam last week after last Sunday's message, and I, was, I, 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 I expressed to him, this is one of those series where um, I'm preaching probably to myself more than I am to you. Although you may say, it really sounds like you're preaching to us pretty hard. <laughs> but I do believe these are really, really important issues that Scripture speaks about that we need to address. When we think about the idea of contentment, we, we, I've said many times going through different passages uh, as we've preached through different concepts, the idea of if, if this isn't a problem with us, then we practice a biblical principle of put off and put on, right? So if we're talking about contentment and the problem is the lack of contentment, what would we call or what would we identify as what we're supposed to be putting off? Well, you would probably say discontentment. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, discontentment. You nailed it. However, the Bible actually doesn't use the word discontentment in it. You won't find that word. We have that word. We use that word in our vocabulary. But if you're going to the Bible to look for a way to put off discontentment, and you're looking specifically for that word, you may come up short. The word, the Bible actually speaks of another word. It's called covetousness. Hebrews 13.5, let me, let me turn there. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. There's your put off. The writer of Hebrews says in this verse, Let what you're doing, your behavior, be without covetousness. Now, let's identify what covetousness is. We have a word that we call it as well, envy. The I want, I want, I want, not content, right? What is the put on? Well, read the verse. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, he's actually quoting there Joshua 1.5 and Ecclesiastes 5.10. Lou Priolo, again, who I'm indebted with, with the skeleton of this, these points. And, of course, as I read Lou Priolo's uh, writings on this, I found that Lou Priolo actually is indebted to Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan. So, again, nothing new under the sun. Lou Priolo said, Covetousness is our inordinate desire to have more than what God has seen fit to give us. Let me read that again. Covetousness is our inordinate desire to have more than what God has seen fit to give us. They say, John, I know, it's not my problem. Because we tend to think covetousness in the realm of, I got to have things. And absolutely, that is definitely an issue. But what about things that you are coveting that... God has not seen fit to provide you with. What about in the area of, I know we have children in here, but the, the area of, of, of intimacy. What about the area of security? What about the area of safety? What about the area or the desire to have more acceptance? Are we coveting? Is our desire for that outgrowing of what God has seen fit to provide us with already? Let's look at Luke 12. 
Again, here we go. We've started the, the turning, so jump with me. Luke 12, verse 15. Jesus said, Take heed, Luke 12, 15, and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. You know, really getting an, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A perspective on this. It's very important for us to really look back at history, at those who lived before the time of electricity. You know, I think that, <laughs> I think that they would probably really have a different perspective on us if they saw everything we have and the things that we complain over. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, uh, said this quote. I'm going to read this a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worthwhile. God sees in his infinite wisdom that the same condition is not suitable for all. Follow with me what he's saying here. This is a guy who never had electricity, okay? Never had, um, you know, drive through restaurants, <laughs> all right? This is a, a pastor, a Puritan, Thomas Watson, and this is book, The Art of Divine Contentment. God sees in his infinite wisdom that the same condition is not suitable for all. That which is good for one may be bad for another. One season of weather will not serve all men's occasions. One needs sunshine, another rain. One condition of life will not fit every man. No more than one suit of apparel will fit everybody. Prosperity is not fitting for all. Let me read that again. Prosperity is not fitting for all. Neither is adversity. Neither is adversity. What, we, what is our, our biggest temptation, I think, sometimes, is that whenever we've gone through something or we have something, we think everybody should go through exactly what we've been through. We think that sometimes. Maybe, okay, okay, I'll catch you a break. Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that. If one man is brought low, perhaps he can bear it better than another can. He has a greater supply of grace, more faith and patience. Another man is seated in an eminent place of dignity. He is better suited for it. Perhaps it is a place that requires a greater measure of judgment which everyone is not capable of. Perhaps he can use his estate better. He has a public or open heart as well as a public place or open home. The wise God sees that condition to be bad for one, which is good for another. Hence it is he who places men in different orbs and spheres, some higher, some lower. One man desires health. God sees sickness is better for him. God will work health out of sickness by bringing the body to death of bringing the body of death into a consumption another man desires liberty god sees restraint better for him he will work his liberty by restraint when his feet are bound his heart shall be most enlarged did we believe this it would give a check to the sinful disputes and quibbles of our hearts shall i be discontented at that which is enacted by a decree and ordered by a providence Am I going to be a devoted child or a rebel? Some interesting thoughts by someone who 
lived in a different perspective on the idea of contentment and where we are. So let's begin. I do have seven points, but I promise you I'm going to get through this because I can... Uh, I know what the chicken and barbecue tastes like, so I really want to get to that as well. All right, so let's look at number one. Contentment is realizing that God has already provided everything that a person needs to glorify and enjoy him. I've said it enough, so let's see how you do with it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. That's our chief end. If that's our purpose, then do you not think that God would supply us with the ability to carry out that purpose? Let me read it again. Contentment is realizing that God has already provided everything that a person needs to glorify and enjoy him. Look, uh, I'm going to run real quick. I, you don't have to go there on this one, but 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, because I want to look at this word that is used for contentment real quick. It's used in Philippians 4.11 in a different form, um, but finding it, I got to the other passages quickly. This one's taking a minute. All right, 1 Timothy 6, 6. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 says, Now godliness with contentment, is great gain. The word there, contentment, is basically the Greek term that's used for sufficiency. Um, a lot of times it's used in, it was used in the Greek language as self-sufficiency. Or uh, some put it this way, finding your sufficiency or sufficiency for yourself within Christ, within God. Priolo says this, if you are content... You have, by God's grace, the inner resources to face living without those outward things that others depend on for their happiness. Think about that. Think about that. Think about those you know or see that do not know Christ. You may have seen this in those that should know Christ or claim they do know Christ, running after those things to make them happy. Do we fall prey to that? But what he's saying is, if you are content, you have, by God's grace, the inner resources to face living with all those outward things that others depend on for their happiness. What's the key? The hinge word. The hinge word is depend. Are we depending on these other things for our happiness? Are we depending on the inner resources that God has provided for the Christian life for our happiness? Are we depending on security and safety for our happiness? Are we depending on intimacy for our happiness? Are we depending on uh, those things that we desire, those material things that we want for our happiness? 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God may is able... To make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So, I think I have this on the screen. What are those inner resources? Let me go through these quickly. The Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit residing within you. Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. We have the internalized word of God. In the armor of God in Ephesians 6, it tells us the sword of the Spirit. We have the internalized word of God. We have faith in the living, sovereign God. 
He is in control. He is in control. Prayer. We have prayer. Oh, how much. We probably should like, I probably should have taken the font on letter D and like made it bigger than the others because how it is. And I say this again, I'm preaching to myself here because how quick it is for me and my personal life to forget that. <laughs> I've got to tell this. I'm sorry. I'm glad I looked in your direction because I've got to tell this story. All right. So many of you that have been here for many years know the story of Brother Steve losing his wallet, right? Talking about he lost it twice. He lost, it, lost his wallet twice. And then, um, you know, Nora, of course, encouraged him, did you pray about it? And so he started praying about it. And then he found it, I think, both times. Uh, I had a, a Brother Steve incident not long ago. Uh, I have a, uh, maybe you've seen my red truck, and it, when we came back from vacation, it was dead, and um, I had to get a new, figured out the battery was bad, so I bought a new battery, found the time to get the battery in there, and I was like, all right, let's see if this was the issue. If it was a battery problem, I go over there to turn the key. The keys are not in it, and I'm thinking, where are my truck keys? I have no idea where my truck keys are. I go looking through the house. I'm going to barking. Who moved my truck keys? Who moved my truck keys? And Mary's like, what are you talking about? Well, oh, because Mary is like, I'll throw it. This is how our dynamic works at home. I come in. I throw things on the counter. Mary does this. Hates counter clutter and throws it all in one place. Another, and then I can't find it. And then she says, I don't know. Maybe it got thrown away. You'd think by now we'd learn our lesson not to do those things. But anyways, it's like a cycle. But uh, I couldn't find my truck keys. I just knew they had gotten thrown in the trash. And so then, actually, I thought, well, maybe I left them at the church. I needed them at the church for something. That was something in my mind was saying, I think they're at the church. So one Sunday, I was over here, and I asked Linda, and I asked Foster. I was like, have you seen my keys anywhere around here? No. Of course, they just chuckled because they know that's sort of familiar with me. And uh, I'm over at the, I'm working at the car lot, and I'm sitting there, and I I answered the phone. I had to go into the other desk to take a payment, uh, and I was waiting for someone to move, and I'm looking down at the uh, Mary's aunt's desk, and I'm sitting there, and there's keys there, and I noticed the church key on it, and I'm like, that looks like the church key, and I moved that, I said, that looks like the mailbox key, that's my keys, <laughs> what are my keys doing here, but what had happened was, is when I was asking Linda and Foster, Nora was right there, and she said, did you pray about it, and I was like, uh, no, I have not prayed about it yet, <laughs> so that morning, I woke up Monday morning, and I prayed, God, help me find my keys, because I need my truck, and that afternoon, I found my truck keys. Because that is some, for some reason, for me, I don't know about you, but for some reason, it seems to be that the last thing I go to is prayer. Which is one of the resources that God has given us to grow in our Christian walk and find that contentment. Truth and wisdom. Colossians 2.3 says, In whom are, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A thankful heart. Uh, we can, we'll go back to Philippians 4.16. We are Philippians 4.6 and 7. He read, we read that earlier where he says, in all things giving thanks. We'll come back to talking about thankfulness in just a minute. Hope, a disciplined mind, the fruit of the Spirit, Christian character. God promised to provide not for all your wants, but all your needs. Maybe it would be a good exercise for us to really put down a piece of paper and take a pen and write down 
wants and needs and really evaluate what is a need and what is a want. Let me help you to decide what is a need and what is a want. A true need is something that you have to live with, meaning if it was taken from your life, you would literally die. I know some people that would say, well, if they took coffee away from me, I would die. No, no, <laughs> not jokingly die, seriously, seriously, okay? A need is oxygen. You remove oxygen, you will not survive very long, okay? That is a need, all right? Um, All right, number two. Contentment is realizing that true satisfaction can come only from building one's life around those things that cannot be taken away or destroyed. Look at Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Now, we are going to be here just a little bit next week because next week we're going to talk about fear and anxiety. Um, But uh, Matthew chapter 6, look at Matthew 6 with me, and we're going to look at verse 19. Matthew 6, 19. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, In this idea, this area of contentment, what does it come down to? It's a heart issue, right? So the idea of if you're already thinking, where is this area for me of contentment? The work needs to be done here. The work needs to be done here. Because maybe what's going on is an imbalance in your own heart of what you are treasuring, what you value. Priolo said again, to put more stock in, to seek more pleasure in, to put more confidence in, or to place more value on temporal things than eternal ones, is to set oneself up for tremendous dissatisfaction, if not utter devastation, if those things are taken away or destroyed. Find this in everyday life. Because you know one of the things that I value? Because I'm going all the time? Rest. And what happens with my, when my six-year-old comes in and just laying down to take one nap a week, and she's like knocking on the door, can I have some strawberries? I really find out what I value when I say, Ergoy! <laughs> Am I right? I mean, we find these things in the things that make us the frustration, the boiling temperature gets to a point. What are the things that we are treasuring? Are we treasuring those things that are selfish to us, that are making us what we think we need to get through the day at that time? Proverbs 27, 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Mm. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. I had an interesting point I was going to make that had to do with politics, but I'm going to go right past that one, Okay. I was, yesterday, I was, uh, or Friday, I was working at the car. I was at the gas station gassing up one of the vehicles, and I just happened to look over, and there was this truck, right? It's like a black, I, forget, I can't even, I even make out because I got so distracted by what was on the back mirror. 
uh, or the back window that I didn't even notice what make and model. I think it was some kind of Chevy or GMC. It was like jacked up, had the, you know, the cool redneck tires on it and all that stuff, ready to go. And the thing that caught my attention was the big wording right on the back window. It said, never satisfied. Never satisfied. And I thought, nope, you never will be. As long as we and those who are not in Christ are continuing to look for satisfaction outside of Christ, we never will be. Number three. Number three. Contentment is delighting in God more than anything else. Contentment is delighting in God more than anything else. Uh, Turn over to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Now, I, I mentioned earlier what the Westminster Catechism said, right? I've said it many times because I think that we need to get that ingrained into us. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. One of the most uh, interesting statements, and I, I put this as one of my top five books that I would recommend anybody to read for any reason, like the top five books that I recommend to everybody. In that top five is a book by John Piper. It's really his magnum opus, meaning his signature work for his, his life and ministry. It's called Desiring God. Now, it is a thick book, but it's worth it. Because what he does is he begins, he talks about that, that idea from the Westminster Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then he builds on that. And he says this. This is his, his thesis statement of the book. He says, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Now, we could spend a while on that, and he actually does. That's entire, his entire book is sort of fleshing out that in areas of life. But think about that. How often do we think about that when we wake up in the morning? Are we living our day to be more satisfied in God, so therefore he can be more glorified in our lives? Psalm 37, verse number 4 says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, we may take this verse and say, well, I, I, can, I can get what I want. See, God wants me to have what I want. <laughs> You're missing the first part of the verse, okay? Because what is the first part of the verse saying? It's saying, when you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires become him. It become aligned with him. And then what has he given you? That desire, that joy, that satisfaction in him. Priolo says this, it is not wrong to find happiness in other things. Now, let's take a break in this. Before I finish the quote, let's, let's hit pause. This message is not a message to make you all feel bad because you enjoy doing things in your life. Okay? I don't expect you to give up everything that you've done and just go completely, you know, everything about my life is going to be ministry and, and, and serving God and all that stuff. No, we do that with our lives, but that's not what I'm getting at. I'm saying if you enjoy, uh, my wife's found a new passion that she has just really loved, and that is, um, I don't know what you would call it even. It's gardening with raised garden beds, but it's like, I don't know, farming? I don't know, but she loves it. She loves it. She's found such joy in it. I'm not saying that she needs to stop for that. You know, I enjoy things. I, I, I enjoy football. I like football. I like watching a game of football. Um, 
I, I, we, we went swimming yesterday with all the, the kids and the family. I enjoyed that. I'm not saying that it's wrong to do those things you enjoy. Now, let me finish this statement. It is not wrong to find happiness and other things. The problem is when we either seek happiness from things God forbids or seek happiness in things God allows. See, the problem becomes when those things that we find enjoyment in get out of balance and out of place, and that's now the avenue that we're going to to find that happiness. Rebecca Makatensky, a biblical counselor, wrote this, God's gifts are for enjoyment and stewardship, not satisfaction. So let me ask you a couple of these questions to sort of pinpoint in your heart maybe what's going on with your discontentment. What is it that you delight in? What is it that you think you cannot be happy without? What do you desire or long for? What do you spend most of your spare time thinking about? What do you worry most about losing? I guess here's the question for the hour. How do you dethrone this? How do you change it? Real quickly, because I had I struggled with having two applications, making this the application, but then I came to a, another application, so I'm going to give you this and the application at the end. How do you dethrone this? First, ask. Ask the Lord. You can go to the next one, Madison. Ask the Lord to convict you of your sinfulness, of your idolatrous desire. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. This is turned into a song that we often sing called Cleanse Me. Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way. Cleanse me from every sin. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Ask the Lord to convict you of the sinfulness of your idolatrous desires. Two, confess your culpability to God for breaking not only two of the Ten Commandments, but Jesus' great commandment. What is that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Number three, pray daily that God will help you dethrone your idols and will give you a greater love for him than for anyone or anything else. Psalm nineteen, twelve through 14. Number four, learn. Learn to view sinful anger, impatience, and anxiety as triggering a divinely installed alarm system that lets you know when you are coveting something to the point of idolatry. And then number five, when your desires conflict with God's desires, choose to give God what he wants rather than giving yourself what you want. That doesn't come overnight. That is a habit, that is practice, that is an exercise that has to be worked on. You know, God created our minds and a lot of our being just the way he created our body. You know, we, the Olympics just happened, and I've always enjoyed watching the, like, the gymnastics with the Olympics, the guys that get up there, and, you know, they get on those rings, and they just, I'm, like, amazed at what they can do. Now, if John goes up there tomorrow and grabs two rings and says, yeah, I got this, you know, and grabs on those things, all right, you're going to be hauling me off to a hospital because I'm going to have, like, arms out of joint and pulled muscles all over my body. Why? Because I have not worked myself up to that. One of the problems I think we have in evangelicalism is people think that they get a truth and automatically, boom, things have done. 
But that's not how God created us to work. It's a process, and in that process, it takes work. It takes exercise. It takes developing that habit. All right, so moving to number four. Number four, and we'll be moving a lot quicker now. Number four, contentment. Number four. All right, number four, contentment is willingly submitting. No, contentment is being able to adjust the level of one's desires to the condition and purpose chosen for them by God. Let's go back to Philippians 4, and we'll stay there the rest of the time. Philippians chapter 4. Contentment is willingly submitting... Or, I'm sorry, I keep reading number five. Contentment is, is being able to adjust the level of one's desires to the condition and purpose chosen for them by God. Philippians 4, verse 11. Now that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. Sorry, I was supposed to read. Yeah, verse 12. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. One of the reasons why I think Paul was able to learn that is because he experienced it both, right? Part of the problem is that we, we have not really experienced a lot of maybe need or suffering, like Paul experienced. Thomas Watson said again uh, in this quote, this is an interesting insight Thomas Watson had. Think about this. It is the fancy which raises the price of things above their real worth. What is the reason one tulip is worth five pounds, another perhaps not worth one shilling? Fancy raises the price. The difference is rather imaginary than real. So why should it be better to have thousands than hundreds? It's because men fancy it so. Think about that. You know, we could really get into this discussion about clothes, right? Like, why is a pair of jeans worth this much at Walmart, but you have another pair of jeans that have a lot of holes in them are worth this much at a department store? You know what I'm saying? Why? It's not really any reason at all. It's because people decide it to be. It's, it's, it's like cotton candy. It's a myth. Sorry, I don't like cotton candy. Um, my kids do, though. But watch what he says next. Watch what Thomas Watson says next. He says, If we could fancy a lower condition better, as having less care in it, and less accountability, it would be far more desirable. The water that springs out of the rock drinks as sweet as if it came out of the golden chalice. Things are as we fancy them. Ever since the fall, the fancy is distempered. God saw that the imagination of the thoughts of his heart were evil. Fancy looks through the wrong spectacles. Pray that God will sanctify your fancy. A lower condition would make us content if the mind and fancy were set correctly. You know, what do we value? You know, do we value things because we see what is popular on social media? You know, what we see the world telling us that we ought to value? 
The next two points, points five and six, are uh, also, uh, these come from the Puritan Jeremiah bureaus. He wrote, a, uh, he, he wrote a work, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And uh, this number one, number five, contentment is willingly submitting to and delighting in God's wise and loving disposal in every condition of life. Contentment is willingly submitting to and delighting in God's wise and loving disposal in every condition of life. You know who was like a giant in that point right there? Job. Right? I mean, what was Job's testimony after he had lost every familial and material thing he had? Next to his wife. He had his wife still. What did he say? Lord gives. Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What did he value? He valued God. He recognized that God was sovereign and was good in the decisions God made concerning his life with what God decided to give to him and with what God decided to take away from him. That Job realized this, that whatever it is, God is still good in it and he still loves me in it. Are we learning, leaning, are we leaning into the sovereignty and wisdom of God in our circumstances? Number six, Contentment is knowing how to use the things of the world without being engrossed in them. It's learning how to, uh, knowing how to use the things of the world without becoming engrossed with them. I'm going to read a quote now. I know I'm reading a lot of the Puritans, but this stuff is just really, really good. Um, uh, but this is by Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, Do not be inordinately taken up with the comforts of this world when you have them. When you have them, do not take too much satisfaction in them. There is a certain principle. However inordinate any man or woman is in sorrow when a comfort has been taken from them, so were they inordinate in their rejoicing in the comfort when they had it. For instance, God takes away a child and you are inordinately sorrowful beyond what God allows in a natural or Christian way. Now, although I never knew before how your heart was towards the child, yet when I see this, Though you are a stranger to me, I may without breach of charity conclude that your heart was immoderately set upon your child or husband, or upon any other comfort that I see you grieving inordinately for when God has taken it away. If you hear bad news about your estates and your hearts are dejected immoderately, and you have discontented mood because of such and such a trial, certainly your hearts were immoderately set upon the world. So likewise, for your reputation, if you... Hear others report this or that evil about you, and your hearts are dejected because you think you suffer in your name. Your hearts were inordinately set upon your name and reputation. Now, therefore, the way for you to be not be immoderate in your sorrow when afflictions come is not to be immoderate in your love and delights when you have prosperity. Those are some hard words. How could Jeremiah Burroughs say such a thing? That's so insensitive, is it not? To sit there and say that if somebody is sorrowing to a certain degree over the loss of their own child, that he can tell by their heart that they had an inordinate love and desire set upon that person? Besides the fact that what he was saying was true, 
I'm sorry if that, that was shocking to you. Besides the fact that what he said was true, you also have to understand that Jeremiah Burroughs lived in a time where the medical advances that we have today didn't exist. So the loss of life and death was a very real reality that they experienced every day. Which is something that has been exposed to us here in the recent year. For instance, one of the uh, Puritans that I have a high regard for is a guy by the name of Matthew Henry. How many of you have ever heard of Matthew Henry before? He's famous to most people today because of his full Bible commentary. Matthew Henry was not granted a license to preach um, in England. Now, like John Bunyan, John Bunyan went to jail. Instead, Matthew Henry sat at his table and wrote his sermons and dispensed them in paper and was able to uh, uh, avoid the detection of the authorities by doing it that way. So that's why we have his commentaries today, because his preaching to his people was all done by writing it down. Do you know, though, Matthew Henry and his wife had ten children. Only one survived to be 18. But that one died, I think, around 19. Now, what's interesting is when you go and you read Matthew Henry's commentaries on sections of Scripture that talk about God's sovereignty. Listen, I'm not, to be un- I'm not trying to be unkind or cruel to you this morning, but I think a perspective from those who have gone before is much needed today for us. Number six, contentment, or that's, I already read number six. Number seven, last, uh, last one. Contentment is thanking God even in circumstances in which one used to murmur and complain. In the same book, Philippians 2, verse 14, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Basically, do all things without complaining. Focus in on the first part of that. Do what? All things. (laughs) Oh, Paul, you're killing me here. Do all things without complaining. Can I tell you how many times I already wanted to complain today? I probably did. When I got here and realized that I couldn't get the lapel mic to work at all and had no idea why. These things go wrong and I just want to complain. These are the all things Paul is talking about. The little things we think it's okay to complain over. Paul says do all things without complaining. Contentment is thanking God even in circumstances which one used to murmur and complain. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Give thanks in all things, in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, young people all the time that are, have a heart and desire for God are asking a lot of times, what's God's will for my life? Here's one. Be thankful in everything. Be thankful in everything. That's God's will for your life. Let me move real quickly to... The final one, and this is our application. All of these truths about contentment, let's ask this question. How to find true contentment? How do you find true contentment? Well, back in Philippians chapter 4. True contentment can be learned. Look at what Paul said. This should be encouraging to us as well. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have, what does he say? Learned. I have learned in whatever state I am 
to be content. Now, this is why I say this is encouraging. Because if Paul says that he learned this, what does that tell you about Paul? It means that at some point or another, Paul wasn't content. I find that encouraging because I struggle with it. And I'm like, you know what, Paul, if you had an issue with contentment at one point, that's hope for me. (laughs) Because if you learned it and you had struggles with it at one point, then I know that my struggles are not just unique to me. And also, I know that I can learn it and I can achieve it in my own personal heart and life. True contentment can be learned. Now look at verse 12. True contentment is not controlled by your circumstances. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Last week I talked about the danger of asceticism. Let me define that real quick. Asceticism is this idea that we try to make ourselves suffer because we think that that's going to make us closer to God. Asceticism is an imbalance. Asceticism is wrong. However, I think part of the attitudes and hearts that we need to have is not be something that is so against going through suffering. We live in a time where if somebody is experiencing suffering... Our minds go into overdrive of trying to figure out every way we can alleviate them, right? You say, well, John, doesn't the Bible say that we're supposed to help people in their burdens and help them? Yes, 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 we do. But we don't, we, I still don't think that we understand what Paul is saying here. What is he saying? I know how to be abased. Why? Because he was humbled. He went from here to here. He was embarrassed at times. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. How did he learn that? He had to be hungry at some point. And so what, what do we do whenever we're going through something like that? We start becoming, that becomes our focus and try to find the first and quickest direct route out of it. And Paul says, these are the things that help me learn contentment. I learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I was listening to a radio station uh, about 10 years ago, and I think it was a Christian radio station, but they did a survey and they asked, what is the one thing that has made you the person that you are today? You know what the number one answer was? The suffering. People had testimonies coming in and said, I would not be who I am today if it were not for the cancer. I would not be what I am today if it wasn't for losing this person in my life. I would not be where I am today. And it was all about the suffering that they went through. We don't like it. I'm not saying, I'm not really saying that you should like it. I'm saying that we should not. We need to understand it's part of God's will for our life, and it's one of the avenues God uses to grow us. And then lastly, true contentment is found in Christ alone. True contentment is found in Christ alone. Look at verse 13. You don't have to look at it. You could probably quote it, right? 1 Corinthians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the most popular verse of Christian school yearbooks for the past 20 years. 
My friend always has, he likes to say this. He says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. And so people take this verse and, and evangelicalism and they think that, you know, they're getting ready to accomplish some feat that they want to do. And they say, you know what? Tattoo 1 Corinthians 4.13 right there because I can do this. Sports players go out there and say, I can win this game through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what it's talking about. That's not what it's talking about. What's the context? What's the context? It's about going through contentment. It's about going through things that, where you abound and where you go through times of great need. Guys, it's about going through life. It's about going through life. And what is he saying? I can do this. I can get through this. You can make it. How? Through Christ, who strengthens you. This verse is, is, is the exact same message Paul was saying when he says that, God, in my weakness, you are made strong. You strengthen me. That's what this is talking about. Rebecca Makatensky, I'm going to read one more quote from her. She says, when we walk through our days in Christ's strength instead of our own, we learn contentment and are able to enjoy life's summers and endure life's winters with patience and joy. Listen, I know this, was, this, this, this is a hard message. <laughs> it's worked on me. And as you can probably tell, I'm still working on this. This is something that I think, though, is very important to everyday living today. And the Bible has something to say about it. Well, we are going to uh, move forward with joy and fellowship today. So we're going to pray, and then um, we're going to move to uh, the meal. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. You are a great, wonderful, loving God. And, and Father, we pray that this, your word will do its work in, in the hearts of the hearers and, and uh, you know, that this truth will be carried out through our Monday and our Tuesday and our Wednesday and, and the rest of the week, that it's not uh, a fly-by uh, message, but it's a truth that sinks down and grips our hearts that we seek your glory and seek to be satisfied in you. We are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the use of your servants. We're thank you for those that you used in times past, like Thomas Watson and Jeremiah Burroughs, that were able to uh, explain some of these truths and ways to us today. We love you and give you praise. We ask for your blessing on the food and the fellowship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.